0: Welcome to the One Player Podcast, the show on Solitaire Board Gaming. I'm your host, Albert, and this is episode one hundred and four.
1: So now we have a die roll. I didn't even hear what your intro was. I was so busy going, oh. It
0: was it was awesome. Oh my gosh. Probably the best one yet. Really. We may have to retire after that one. This
1: <laughs> is totally going in the show now.
0: <laughs> Tret. Alright. Hi, Albert. Hey, Julius. How's it going? Doing well. How's your day going? Good. Busy. Tired. Yeah. But good. Alright. So Shall we get on with the show, then? Sure. What have we got to talk about today? Got any news for us? Um... Hey, dogs. <laughs> no, I don't have any news other than the Kickstarter for the Challenge Coin is going. Just two more days left at this point. I think 49 hours, probably. How goes the hunt for the velvet bag? Oh yes, yeah, so I'm. I'm looking to see if I get some sort of bags, as some sort of stretch go kind of thing. I don't know that that'll actually happen or not. Um, pro- probably once the thing ends and I send out surveys, then I'll have an idea. I'm Did you actually see them. my um yes, email? Yeah, I saw you sent me an email about another company that does it. Yeah, um, just just
1: so you know what to look for.
0: Yep, yep. I've I found another. Somebody else sent me a, a link to a website, but. That one seemed a little bit expensive because of the shipping fees. So I found a, yet another one, and maybe I'll go with that. You know, Again, I don't actually know if it's going to be uh, feasible or not. It may end up still costing too much. So, you know, Once once the whole thing's done and I can tally up all the money and figure out how much there is, then I'll know if I, I'll do that or not. To say the very least, you're definitely running things different than I would expect from a normal Kickstarter.
1: <laughs> yeah, this like, isn't normal, is we're it? We're going to do stretch goals after I find out about them, <laughs> after I'm done with the campaign. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> that, that's selling it, isn't it? <laughs> I, I think it's a good thing you're funded already. Otherwise, I don't think you'd fund,
0: Albert. <laughs> Not with an attitude like that. Well, you know, from the beginning I said don't expect stretch goals, so I think it's okay. Well, and now you have two stretch goals. You have a rule
1: book. You have oh, velvet yeah, that
0: bags. Way. That rule book may fall through. I haven't
1: thought about it. Well, I mean, fortunately, at the very least, it can offer it as a digital one, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I'll supply play the link to that forum thread. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I haven't really worked at it. I don't know if I'll actually get around to, to make it in more formal. Oh. It's all good with me. All good with me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah,
1: that was it for the news. Uh, do we have any Kickstarter? Sure. Um. Well, one interesting Kickstarter that started up... Um, have you ever played 11Zs for one? Yes, I have. I like that game. You like that game? Yeah, I got that during the um, last solo um, print and play contest, which is soon to start up, actually, if you're following that or are interested in playtesting anything or giving feedback. Um, this is sort of on the side, but I know that uh, Chris Hansen this year, he's looking for people to help out with the solo print and play contest. And by help out, he's looking for people to playtest. test. And so if you're interested in giving feedback or getting involved early on uh, some of these and helping them be essentially the best they can be, he's trying to organize together. Um, I guess it's like a group. I know he's using Google Groups to try and keep everything organized. I'm not really sure how to go ahead and get involved at this point in time. I don't think he posted anything to the guild about it, to my knowledge. Um, I just got sent an email directly to me Because I know I talked about doing it last year and I talked about helping out in this thing last year. So he sent me an email directly. I suppose if you're interested in getting involved from, you know, from the ground here, um, with playtesting for the upcoming, um, solo print and play contest, uh, speak with Chris Hansen and he'll connect you up with some people who are in need of playtesters.
0: Is it upcoming? Because I have noticed that a couple threads are ready for the con for contest entries. I believe the contest is well. I don't know the quite the official rules.
1: The upcoming part I was referring to is upcoming to start seeing stuff coming out and have um, stuff becoming available for printing. So. It's up and coming, I believe is the better terminology to use. There's already a couple things that are coming out that are components ready, which means that all the stuff you need is already there. It's not just uh, brainstorming or working through the rules. It's ready for printing and playing. Um, I don't really know what the definition of, of ready is, you know, there's mm-hmm. stuff there. You can definitely get involved.
0: <laughs> cool. Okay. Well, if we can, we'll include uh, some links to something. Yeah, I mean, sure. na- I can like get a said. link
1: to the guild, but we can definitely just get a link over to Chris Hansen, that's for sure. That's
0: true. That's right. And, and if nothing else, email Chris.
1: Anyway, that was just simply something that was a by the way reminder. Um, because I was reminded about this because 11 z for One is up on Kickstarter. Now, 11 z for One is something that came up previously on the solo. Um, contest i can't remember what it placed back then but i know it placed i know it was a game that i certainly enjoyed i find it interesting that they that at the time that they were doing 11 elevensies for one he talked about some of the changes he would make if the game went to print and i didn't see those get made <laughs>
0: mm, okay.
1: um but let's talk about the game of a butler trying to arrange up a tea set in order to serve it, and you only have a couple minutes to do it. So it's a very short game. I think it's, what, 15 cards, even less?
0: Mm-hmm. I think it's a set of... It might be 13. Oh.
1: Um, it's 11 cards and two timer cards, so it's only 13 yes.
0: cards. Yes. 13 including... Yeah, because because I was able to print four with a deck of 52 mm, cards. There you go. Um, yeah, it was available previously. And
1: on uh, print and play sites, or I think it was on drive through cards. So the idea is simply that you'll have your row of cards, and you have to go through the row of cards and try and sort them out into the correct order so that you can get them onto the cart. But if you get to a card which isn't right, you have to interact with it, which usually means discarding it or taking its action or something else, and all of that will get in the way of being able to finish out getting your cart in order. It is a solo-only game because it was for the um, solo play print and play contest, and it was one that I liked, and I definitely liked having it on print and play. Um, I'm not sure that I need to have it <laughs> another copy purchased. I don't really know what more is being brought from having the boxed version personally.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it, it looks like it, it's one box and has three games in it. Right, it has a game called Sixes, Eleven Seas for One, and then Bowling Solitaire. Which is a, a game by Sid Saxon. Hmm, I think it's nine. I think it's nine dollars each. Well, it says nine
1: dollars each back up on the top. So
0: ah, okay, okay. Bowling solitaire's included with eleven Cs for one.
1: Uh yes. There we go. Okay, so it's two games. You do get you do get an extra copy of bowling uh, bowling solitaire. Sid Saxon's bowling solitaire. Um, with that, but I don't really know very much about bowling solitaire. Do you?
0: Yeah, I covered it way back years ago in the episode. It's a good game. It's a lot of fun. Um, Oh, it's surprisingly uh, a deep game, considering what it is and how light it is. It's just played with uh, half a deck of playing cards. It's another very short game. Yes, it is. And over at the one-player guild, they're starting a bowling league now of bowling solitaire. (laughs) (laughs) So if you get this, you can join in in the fun. All right. Do you have a bowling shirt and shoes? I do not. But what I found interesting about 11
1: for one, I remember when it was... In the print and play contest, we were talking about how I personally dropped the timer cards, and I was using small cubes to track my time. I would stack up, I think it's you get 11 minutes or something like that. I would stack up 11 cubes on it. Oh, it's 15 minutes. I would stack up 15 cubes on the card, and every time a minute went by, I would take a cube off the card. I was saying, it would be really nice if it went to print to have it come with a set of chipboard tokens for those instead of having a timer card. They guess that didn't happen.
0: <laughs> no, yeah, maybe that that adds a lot to the production cost already. It does <laughs> add
1: some to the production cost, but it's such a cheap game, and it's nine dollars. That's know. true.
0: That's true. So
1: it's nine dollars for what is what twenty cards. How, how many cards in bowling solitaire? It's
0: uh, two suits, so you get twenty-six there, and so it's three fourths of a deck of cards is what you can end up getting. So you'd get what. 40
1: cards mm-hmm. for $9 I don't know I would have liked I would have liked to see at least some thin chipboard tokens coming in there
0: that's true well and the big box <laughs> you know I guess it does look like a big box for the game because it's part of this uh, egg series mm-hmm. that's a numbered series and, and 11 season for one will be number 11 mm-hmm. it includes other games like uh, let's see Eggs and Empires 12 Days of Christmas those are the two I recognize Mm-hmm. Fleet Wharfside, side a fleet another fleet game
1: sevens seven 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 yep so but you know, it's a great game I really like the game I just don't think that the box itself brings much value from what I could get from the print and play that has already been available.
0: Oh, <laughs> well, these guys are so goofy. You know, I, I just realized the uh, the numbering system is so off. This Kickstarter mm. is for the for the game sixes, which is number six in the series, and eleven sees for one, which is number eleven in the series. Yes. Sevens that has already come out is seventh in the series after sixes. Yes.
1: <laughs> it's so goofy. Because they skipped I, I recall watching that um Kickstarter when they were doing sevens, and they said it's seven, and we're skipping number six. Because we have one coming that's going to be number six, it's just not out yet. Yeah, they have no problem doing that. And I'm fine with it because it's cute.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a neat idea.
1: It's cute. It's a nice thing to do. I'm fine with that. Yeah. So I have to make sure they fill out all the gaps in the middle. Anyway, so that's Elevensees and Solitaire Bowling. All right. Any more Kickstarters? Yeah, there's one more that I want to talk about. Days of Ire Budapest,
0: 1956. Are you a historian, Buff? I I like history, but I don't know a lot about it. About this period specifically, I guess. Well, I didn't was not familiar with it
1: before I read about this game, but apparently, around 1956, in fact, in October 23rd, 1956, in Hungary, the Hungarian youth made a protest against the communist regime, and the communists apparently struck back, and there was a mini-war, I'm not quite sure what you call it, but there was a protest with armed resistance occurring in Budapest in 1956, with... A bloody battle and a whole lot of people getting hurt and it was just really bad. In, so in Days of or Budapest in 1956, it's, a, it's definitely a unique game in multiplayer because it's a one versus many or cooperative game. When you're playing one versus many, the one has a very different game that they're playing than the many. The many are acting as the youth revolt their job is to run around the board taking actions um, pulling together resources releasing new revolt people to get more access to actions more access to actions excuse me and essentially they're playing sort of a pandemic game they're trying to pull together all of these resources and actions to be able to clear all of the stuff that the communists are doing throughout the board. And if they can clear all the stuff that the communists are doing throughout the board, they're able to win. Alternatively, if they ever lose all of their, um, if they ever lose all of their morale, then they automatically lose. Alternatively, if they ever clear every single one of the communists' military troops from the board, they completely clear the communist presence out, then they will win also. So the game sort of centers around, well, who can overwhelm who with events before one of the alternative um, events, one of the alternative win conditions happens. But that's for the many side. And in the co-op version, that's or solitaire, solitaire version, that's what it is that the one player is doing. But the communist side is always only being played by one, but they're playing a very different game. They play almost like, if you're familiar with how Twilight Struggle works... Um, they play a game where they get a hand of cards. And each of their cards th- will either do one of two things. It'll give them, essentially, actions, purchase power. Or it can be used for an event. Some events are good for the communist player, in which case it's a choice. They can either use it for action points, or they can use it for the event. But some of the actions are good for the, re- the rebellion side. In which case, in order to use the card... The communist player has to, you, has to give them that event. It has to go ahead and help them out. So they have very much a push and pull with the various sort of actions that they can do. And it would change things that they're doing. It's, it's interesting to me that you have that very asymmetrical game. They're playing two very different games between the two of them. That sounds really neat. hmm What's interesting about this that I found it was originally supposed to be one versus one. And the designers of the game decided, you know, what? we don't really always want to play one versus one. I sometimes want to just play one versus a solo game. And so they started it with being a solitaire game. And this is another one that because they got a solitaire game working, they decided, oh, we can actually just make this co-op and broaden it out to co-op. And then once we have it being co-op, we can make it be one versus many instead of just one versus one. But it's interesting that the track that the, de- that the designers took for this one was they first went to Solitaire because they wanted to play it Solitaire without another person there. They want essentially just to play the pandemic side of things. And then they decided, oh, we can use all these things that we came up with to make a more compelling, um, multiplayer game with some extra co-op functions in and with some different methods of sharing people. And so they, they changed things around because they went to Solitaire. So it definitely appears from the way that the designers went that they're going to be making a strong, solitaire version of the game.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, that, that sounds promising. Is this available to play now?
1: Uh, this is look? available on Kickstarter right okay. now. But You're saying is it available for print no, and play? Yeah. I don't think it's available for print and play. You could download the WIP no, PDF rules. You can download the work-in-progress rules. The rules are available, but I don't think that there was a print-and-play available. It's also a whole lot of cards and things that you would be printing off, mm. now that I know mm-hmm. that's not going to stop some people. But the game is mostly card-based with some tokens, but there's 140 cards and 80 tokens. Yeah, ouch. That's a lot of effort. So there's definitely a lot of stuff. That's the sort of thing that I would probably, if I wanted to like try it out, I'd pull it out for... um tabletop simulator or something like that but there's not one of those available either you said 140 cards 140 cards yeah and the game costs about 50
0: dollars to get that's the, the base pledge you know that, that's pretty cheap it's not bad i think that's cheaper than a uh, magic cards than- <laughs> well you know uh, maybe <laughs> that is close- not a proof of anything <laughs> Well, that is not proof of anything. Fifty dollars for one hundred fifty cards is about thirty three cents a card. I don't think you can really <laughs> work that way. And how many? I mean, how many magic I, cards I come in that, a pack for like four or five bucks?
1: I know that, like, when they're making the price for the game, they'll they'll think that way. I don't know. <laughs> I've seen some other people. Like, I know. I'm sure you're aware that I'm pretty um, heavily invested in Plathead Games mm-hmm. and in Ashes. And I've seen some people who talk about how Ashes is not a good, the Ashes expansions are not a good, um, price per card in comparison to other, um, expandable card game type things like the Fantasy Flight ones, because the cost per card is lower with something like Android Netrunner than it is for Ashes. And I say, really? (laughs) (laughs) That's not really where, that's not really where it's supposed to be, price per card. It's supposed to be, well, the whole box is this, it's just set by the whole yeah, box. Yeah, that,
0: that makes sense. I mean, I, if you start thinking price for, per card for Magic, you know, it's probably about 30 cents a card. But if you think about price per usable card in, the, in a pack, it's probably about it's so $5 a card. Usable. <laughs> well, it's so hard to understand usable, too. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm fully aware
1: there's some in the most recent expansion for Ashes, I'm fully aware. Some of the things that got released are not really that great and are not going to get used. Mm-hmm. I know that. But so it's hard to say that everything in the box is useful. Yeah. Not everything and, in the box and, you know, is useful.
0: You know, it may not get used but. today, or or somebody may end up using it. You know, there's strategies not everybody's thought about. It. And right, I remember listening to a podcast about magic, not magic, um, the Lord of the Rings card game, and some folks were saying, "Oh yeah, we went to a game day and played against with other people uh, cooperatively," and and I was surprised at, at some of the decks that people have built that it would never have occurred to me to use cards that way, or even the cards they use. So right. Yep. But, you know, th- I'm sure this topic has been discussed to death over the last 15 or 20 years. We don't I'm sure. <laughs> we don't need to go into it.
1: Or and I know that it comes into play in production, but I, it was just because you brought it up like, oh, it's 140 <laughs> cards, it's good price. I don't know. It's, it's hard to really judge, especially when you don't know the it quality is. of the cards, you don't know the quality of the token, the board, the gameplay. It's really hard to judge. Yep. That really sort of feels to me a very holistic sense to the development, the design, the graphic design. Like, there's some games that have a, a ton of cards. I'm thinking of some deck builders that we've reviewed before. Mm-hmm. They have a ton of cards. But the, des- the graphic design is not great. So it doesn't matter what the price per card is. If the graphic design is not great, I don't value those cards very highly. Yep. With this particular game, I think the graphic design looks pretty nice. <laughs> you know? The tokens look like war chits. The pencil art and everything else looks fine. I'm not blown away by it, but it looks nice. Yep. It looks fine. <laughs> I agree.
0: All right, so let's move on.
1: All right, fair enough. Um, all right, the next game I want to talk about is called The Summit. And really one of the reasons why I want to talk about this one is because it looks really nice. We were talking just a second ago about... You know, how we value higher cost when games look really nice and look like they're really well done. This is one that looks like it's really well done. To start with, just talking about the components that I'm looking at. Each player board has individual player mats and they're dual height player mats, which means that there's spaces to hold your tokens. In this game, you're going to be tracking various different things. You track food, oxygen, weight, health, speed. And so the Cubes that you're using to track those have little spots in the player board to get held. And I know that some other games have done this too. You know, one that comes to mind is Scythe, for example. It's actually a recessed part of the board. But I think that, you know, the graphic design, everything else look nice. And I like that extra touch of having an actual spot to hold those tokens. It makes it look really nice. Um, additionally, the basic idea of Summit, I apologize for not starting off with this one, but, the basic idea of Summit is that all of the players are racing to climb up a mountain. There's going to be these triangular tiles that will come out to the mountain, which dictate what the mountain track looks like if you're walking through clear, or through ice, or through snow, or through storms. And those triangle tiles will come out over the course of the game, and they make really a very dynamic board. It means that the board state changes each time. It's not like K2 or something like that, where the game, the the basic board looks the same each time, because each time it's random, it changes what the board looks like. And when you're playing in the competitive version, players are racing up using event cards and karma cards to essentially jockey for position. The event cards fight off everyone, but the karma uh, cards will help you share food with other players and go up on the karma tracks that you get better off based upon your karma points or to try and slow players down or sabotage another player and so you'll hold them back and you'll spend some of your karma to do that and when you're playing competitively so all of that jostling behind means that sometimes the players farther behind are going to be teaming up and using their karma to fight with the players up ahead and so there's a lot of dynamic movement going around and being shifted as you're playing it the game comes with bright colored they're standard meeples i don't think they're shaped at all in cubes for everyone it also has a design for the card art that i think looks really cool i don't know if albert can see the design for them with the Mm-hmm. I guess logos, the the bright pencil art. I like the graphic design on the back of the cards, the karmas, the items, and the events. just looks cool. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't know that I'm a fan of the font that they're using on the front of the cards. It's a little bit hard to read that font. But, you know, I'm not holding those cards in hand, so I don't necessarily know what it's like in person. But I, I like the graphic design. I think the graphic design looks really nice. Mm-hmm. Additionally, they have a whole set of extra components for co-op or solo mode. In co-op, you don't have the karma, you don't have the karma stuff, you don't have position, it's not a race. It's just everyone has to work together to get to the top of the mountain in 24 hours. And so now instead of having a race, you're racing time. And everyone has to work together to carry items and push everyone else along, and everyone has to, you know, team up to get up. You now have also pack mules, Sherpas, that will you'll have to continue carrying up items. In the main version of the game, you can get like an item drop halfway along. Now you don't have that anymore, so you have to know how to balance the Sherpas and balance moving forward and deal with time of day. It can be more complicated to make sure all that works in order to get up there in just 24 hours. So... The fact that they threw in there, it's a whole other set of components and it's another set of cards. looks really nice. I'm, I'm a fan of the design going on for all of it. So I think it looks really cool.
0: Yeah, I think so too. You know, it does mention it's not a final art yet either, so maybe the maybe that font will change.
1: Well, I think that they're saying it's not final art for the mountain board um cuz currently they just have a picture of a mountain but i assume that they're going to be redesigning it so it looks more like the drawings of the people mhm shrug i have no clue yeah who can say <laughs> but i like where they're headed with it yeah i That's agree sure. it, it
0: looks interesting it looks like it'd be a fun puzzle trying to figure out mm-hmm. the, the best route mm-hmm. so this one's a little bit less expensive it's only about 48 uh,
1: only excuse me only about $40 uh we again have the exchange rate going on so it's only about forty dollars to get a copy of the game. Oh, excuse me, it's only about forty dollars. It's only about fifty dollars if you want to get it with the co-op mode also. So for solitaire play, you need the co-op mode. So oh. it's about fifty dollars.
0: Okay. And this one's going to be ending on July sixth. Okay, so so then it sounds like the solo version is an expansion.
1: It, it's being treated as an expansion. I don't know. It's hard to tell when it's mm-hmm. being treated in Kickstarter. And it's being bundled. I don't think it's packaged separately.
0: Maybe not, but if they're selling the uh, the base game without the solo mode, and then an in a in little more expensive version with the solo mode, I would think of it as an expansion.
1: I suppose. I don't know what it's considered on Board Game Geek, but I suppose that yeah. makes sense. Oh yeah, it's actually called an expansion. Aha! They call it an expansion. You are correct, Albert. <laughs> I should have known better than to question you. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm just guessing here. Anyway, that's all I've got for Kickstarter. You got anything interesting? Uh, No. We talked about the coin already. Um, I haven't backed anything. I'm wanting to back a game, but it's not a solitaire game. It is a Catacombs expansion.
2: Hello and welcome to PNP Patrol. I'm Chris. Last time I talked to you about some of the solitaire games from the nine-card contest and the war game contest that were being conducted on BoardGameGeek, but I didn't have time to talk about games from the one-page contest. This is another print-and-play design contest that's hosted on BoardGameGeek. Obviously, as the title implies, this is focusing on games that are printed on a single page. Now like the other contests, it's not a solitaire-specific contest, but it did have a solitaire category, and there were several solitaire games uh, entered into the contest, and I'm going to talk about three of my favorites today. Before I get into that, though, I do want to let you know that the solitaire print-and-play design contest that I host on BoardGameGeek, which is dedicated entirely to solitaire games, did begin recently. It's accepting new entries through July 31st, so if you have some game ideas that you'd like to enter, please feel free to come in and enter those. We'll provide a link in the show notes and in the geek list on BoardGameGeek to the contest. And voting on that contest will go through September 4th. So if you you know if even if you don't want to enter a game, you can still come and play test and have fun and contribute and meet some of the awesome people who've entered games in that contest. There's already at the time of recording 20 games that have components available so there's plenty Of new games to come in and try. So, the three games I'm going to talk about today, all of which are from the one page contest, obviously, these are all very easy to print. They're all just one page uh, with a, a, a short rule book that goes with them. The cool thing about these games for people who maybe don't like doing all the crafting and cutting and gluing is that these games are printed on a single sheet there's nothing to cut out. Um, Maybe you need a few cubes or dice or a pencil to make marks on the board, but there's nothing to actually craft on any of these games. These are literally just print and play. You don't have to do anything. So I thought this would be a good set of games to talk about for people who maybe are less interested in doing that kind of cutting and gluing work uh, to play a game. The first game I'm going to talk about today is called 30 Rails by Julian Anstey. This game is a train-building game. You're, you're trying to build tracks between stations, but this is a very simple paper-and-pencil kind of game. So the way this game is played is that you have a, a grid with 36 squares, 6x6, six six, and all of the squares are blank at the beginning of the game, but they're labeled 1 through 6, the columns and rows, so you can kind of identify each square by their numbers, so what you're going to do at the very beginning is draw in a couple of mountains based on die rolls. So you'll roll a die, and you know if the die says two, you'll draw a mountain somewhere in one of the six squares of the second uh, of the second column. And you'll do that five times, drawing five mountains. And then you'll uh, pick another column using a die roll and draw in a mine. And then you'll uh, put in your station identifiers, kind of on the border. And the stations are just one, two, three, four. So you're just writing all of this information in on the grid. And then to play the game, you're going to roll two dice. One of them is white, and one of them is going to be a colored die. And the white dice will tell you what column you have to put your track in. And the colored die will refer to a little chart on the board that tells you what type of track you can build. So maybe the track is a corner that you know goes around a bend, or maybe it's a straight line that goes from one end of the square to the other. And these are all very simple shapes that anyone can draw. There's nothing complicated about them. But you'll, you'll roll to see what column you have to draw in, and then you'll roll to see what kind of track you have to draw. And then you draw it uh, in one of the boxes in that column. So you can pick one of the empty boxes and draw that track. And what you're trying to do is connect your stations together uh, with a continuous track. And it starts out pretty easy because you've got, you know, lots of empty boxes that you can choose from and you can draw your track wherever you want. But it starts filling up very quickly and it starts getting very hard to connect your tracks because maybe you've drawn one previously that's going in a completely different direction than what you need to go later on in the game. Uh, so it's, it's very hard, you know, it's kind of a puzzle to solve trying to figure out what your best moves are going to be early on in the game. On how you can connect to your tracks and uh, you'll also need to connect to your mind to earn some additional points each station that connects to your mind kind of increases your points with a significant multiplier so that can be a very good way to get a high score and then your your overall score in the game is determined by the length of the track between the stations so if you can get a long track that kind of weaves around and and you know goes through a lot of squares on the board You can get a very high score because you're you're counting the squares that your track passes through but if uh, you know the risk there of course is that if you make a very long track you might not be able to connect it or you'll be able to connect one very long track but then it will get in the way of your your other tracks and you won't be able to connect very many stations so your goal that you're trying to think of here is connecting a lot of stations with as long of track as possible so this is a really simple game. It plays very quickly, but it's very fun. And these, the board is very simple and very low ink. It's just a black and white grid with uh, a few charts to kind of help you remember what's going on in the game and, and what types of tracks you can use. So this is a game you could print and print multiple copies for all the times that you want to play it, or you could print it and laminate it and use a dry erase marker. And then, you know, you just have to print it once and you can play it as many times as you want. And just erase the board when you're done. Very very fun game. I really like it. Recommend it highly. Especially if you like brain burners. Next up is a game called 1572, The Lost Expedition by Mike Hine. In this game, you are part of an expedition that was exploring the New World during the Spanish Conquistador era. And you've made it pretty far inland, you're you're in some mountain ranges, but unfortunately the game begins with everyone in your expedition party dying uh, of an ambush or some sort of disaster, and only you and six other people have survived. And you are tasked with leading them back to the coast where you can signal a ship and get rescued. So this is another paper-and-pencil style game where you have a, a very, very simple map showing some mountains and a shoreline on the other side of the board. It's a hex map, but it's never more than about three or four hexes wide at any point. And you're just trying to cross the board and it kind of, you have a river that weaves through the map, but other than that, there's really not any terrain. And so what you're going to be doing on this blank hex map is exploring, mapping out the terrain and trying to find your way back to the coast. You know it's to the southeast, but you really don't know the path to take to get there, and what kind of obstacles you're going to take. So every turn in this game, you're going to be exploring and trying to plot your path. And it's it's going to be very slow going. You have to maintain your stamina. You have a dice that tracks your movement ability, and it has to be at a level six. So Some turns you might add in one or two movement points, so you're actually building up to your movement ability very slowly so that you can actually move. So this isn't a very fast-paced game. This is almost more of a storytelling game because what you're doing in this game each turn is rolling five dice, and those five dice are going to kind of tell you what you can do and what kind of encounters you're going to have. So one of the dice, for example, might say, you can, you can get some movement points added to your movement die. Another one would tell you you're mapping, and this is the kind of terrain that you're seeing in front of you. And you're filling in the map, so you're going to draw little pictures of mountains and jungles and forests and lakes and plains and swamps. And there's there's all these different types of terrain that you'll be drawing on the map plotting as you plot out your path and move slowly forward. You also have to feed your your men, so you'll be looking for food. And you might be doing that by hunting, so you'll need muskets. You might also be attacked by the native population, so you'll be defending yourself a little bit. And you also need to keep your men's morale high. And to keep your men's morale high, you need to be moving, and you need to be moving in the right direction. So the longer you stay in one spot, building up your movement points, which is kind of like trying to find your path, essentially, in, in the, the theme of the game— the men's morale will actually be going down while that's happening. And if you ever have to move in the wrong direction, like let's say you're you're going through and you come across some terrain that's blocking you, so you have to move in the other direction to get around it, that can lower their morale significantly as well. So you're trying to balance all these things as you make your way across the board. So this is an interesting game, but it's definitely kind of a storytelling theme that's that's how i look at it there's there's even a a phase of the game it's it's optional you don't have to do this but the designer recommends you keep a little journal of what happened in the game and kind of make up a story about what's going on in the game so for example you might move into a hex and and look to the next hex to see what's ahead and identify there's a native village and maybe it's an unfriendly one or maybe it's a friendly one but as you're as you're going through, you, would, you could write out a little story about, you know, the men are very hungry, and morale is low, and we encountered a native village, and they helped us hunt, they gave us some food, and that helped increase the morale. I mean, all of these things that happen in the game, you can work into your little story as you're going, and it's almost like um, a role-playing game in that sense. You have a limited number of turns that you can make it uh, back to the shore. If you haven't made it back at the end of, I think it's 42 turns, uh, you'll lose the game. But other than that, if you can make it in that time frame, you, you'll win the game. And you earn points based on how many men you have with you. And you also earn a point for every hex that you have mapped. So it's really in your best interest to map as many as you can as you move across the board. The game is not a big decision-maker kind of game. It's kind of a you know you're you're rolling and seeing what happens and telling this story there's not a lot of decisions to make and that you're always just trying to move Across the the board, you, you know, you're, ne- you're never going to decide to move in a different direction. You're trying to get to the shore all the time, and you'll you'll decide a little bit how to dedicate your time to finding food and things. But a lot of that is done by by the luck of the roll. If you haven't rolled something that gives you food or rolled an exploring dice, you know, you, you're not going to find any on that turn, which is okay. I mean, it's just not that kind of game. Uh, but if you're into that storytelling, role playing kind of thing. This, I think this is a really, really well-done game. It's just not going to be one that's like a a, a brain-burning puzzle kind of game like 30 Rails was. But it's still excellent, just in a different way. The final game I want to talk about today is called Paper Mech, and it's a game by Chris Alton. This game actually won the contest. It was the grand prize winner, and it won several other of the category prizes that the contest had, too. I think it took second place in most innovative mechanic and and a couple other categories. In this game, you are the last line of defense between your people and this invading army of futuristic tech and and robots and flamethrowers and all kinds of uh, bad things. And you are riding in an armored mech suit, uh, heavily armored and you're trying to use this mech suit to defend and battle and defeat all of these enemies that are going to come. You've got four waves of enemies, and if you can destroy all of them and survive, then your people are safe and you've won the game. It reminded me a little bit of Utopia Engine by Nick Hayes. And I don't say that because of the gameplay necessarily, but because you have this game board... And of course, it's on a single sheet, but it's a very condensed game board. There's a lot of information on here, kind of like Utopia Engine. That you know, the first time you look at that board and you look at the kind of dense rule book, and you think, "What in the world is going on with this game?" And there's a lot of information. Like, there's a lot of things you need to know to play Utopia Engine or to play Paper Mech. Uh, Paper Mech has the longest rule book by far of of any of the other solitaire games that I've talked about today. But like Utopia Engine, once you get going, once you've ingested all these rules, you'll find it's really simple to play. You know, Utopia Engine has this huge rule book and man, it it feels kind of complicated as you're reading it. And then you start playing it and it's just super smooth and, and very natural. And that's how this game was too. So what I the thing I really like about this game, and I think when it got second place for Best Innovative Mechanic, um, I really like that because I think this is a pretty innovative game in that there's no real turns in this game. This game is constantly moving because everything that you do is based on a little time track that's on the board. So when you decide to take an action, like I'm going to fire my missiles or I'm going to move my mech suit got a counter that's counting down seconds and you know maybe your missile takes three seconds to arm and fire and it takes one second to move so you plot out your actions and you you put a cube on this time track okay it takes three seconds to fire fire my missile so i'm going to put a cube on the three time track but then your enemies at the the same time uh, you're getting attacked by these randomly generated enemies and they all have weapons that take a certain amount of time to fire as well. So there's an enemy cube on the time track as well, and seconds pass uh, the same for both of you. So as your cube moves down the track, so does theirs, and whichever one gets to the end of the track first will do their action. So maybe if if you can fire your missiles and destroy an enemy, their time their their cube would be removed. And they wouldn't fire but if if it went the other way around and the enemy's cube got there before yours did they're gonna fire on you and you're gonna take some damage and then your cube will get down to the bottom of the time track and you'll fire but that is constantly regenerating like as the enemy cube goes to the bottom they'll do their action and then their cube will reset and you do your action and you pick another and your cube resets so you're trying to pick actions that take less time than the enemy so that you can do it before the enemy. But of course the better actions take more time, getting uh your bigger guns or or moving uh, in certain ways or or arming very powerful weapons takes more time. So if you're attacking an enemy with a that has something that has a shorter time span, they're going to be hitting you before you can hit them. So there's a lot of interplay with this time track that I really really like. But a little more about the game, Uh, on the upper left of the play sheet, you've got a little radar circle, and it's divided into ranges, so your first circle is very close, your next circle is a short range, then a medium range, and then a long range, and it's divided into six segments, showing where your enemies can be in relation to you, and then at the very center of that circle, you'll see a little silhouette of your armored mech suit. And so this is showing where your enemies are in relation to you. If they're on the side or if they're right in front of you. And all of these things kind of dictate how they can shoot at you and how you can shoot at them. What's cool about this radar circle is that as you make movement actions, obviously, you know, your mech isn't actually moving on the game board, so you'll be moving all of the cubes for the enemy around the, the circles or closer to you or farther away, depending on how you're moving. So if you take a step backwards, then everything that's in front of you would go one circle back from like the short range to the medium range, uh, which would maybe put them out of range so they couldn't hit you with their weapons anymore. So that's one of the defensive things you can do, or you can move in closer and shoot them with your weapons that maybe don't have as long of a range either. So the game is divided up into four different waves. And on each wave, you're going to roll a die on this little table to determine what type of enemy is going to come and attack you. So in the first wave, you're only going to get one enemy, and it's going to be kind of one of the weaker ones. And, you know, maybe they have a machine gun or or a flamethrower or something. Of course, none of the weapons are you know, good for you, but these weapons don't, probably don't do as much damage as some of the ones that you're going to see later on in the game. So... In the second phase, you're going to get two of the lesser enemies. And then in the third phase, you're going to get uh, two of the stronger enemies. And in the fourth phase, you're going to get three enemies. So you're going to have three different cubes around around your radar that you're trying to defend and fight against all at the same time. So that first phase is going to be pretty easy. You've only got one enemy to take care of. But as you move on in the game, you've got very strong enemies surrounding you. And if they can ever get behind you, which they're constantly trying to do with the enemy movement rules, if they can hit you from behind, your armor isn't as good back there, and it can affect everything else you do, such as movement or or other kinds of attacks. So basically, each of your enemies has two little circles on their chart, and you're trying to mark those off as you get hits against them. Uh, Some of them actually have three circles, so... Some of them are harder to kill than others, but every time you hit them, you're going to color in one of the circles and try to eliminate them. Once you've eliminated all of the enemies in a a phase, or in one of the waves, you're able to go through and kind of repair some of the damage you've had. So down at the bottom of your sheet, you've got a little picture of your armored mech suit and then charts for each different part of it. And each one of those charts also has circles that you're coloring in as they hit you. So there's a chart to show where they're going to hit you when they fire. You roll on that chart to determine if it's your left shoulder or your legs or your torso. And, and then depending on their hit, you, they, you'll color in those little circles. And if they all get filled in, you can actually lose weapons. And if your torso gets significantly damaged, you can actually lose the game completely. That's Your, your suit has blown up and you've died and and the enemies win. But it's very thematic, like the damage that's done to each part will affect very specific things in that game. So for example, if your legs are damaged, it will affect one of your movement options. So maybe you'll be able to move forward, but you won't be able to move backwards unless until you fix that damage at the end of the phase. Same thing with your different weapons. You won't be able to fire certain types of shields or Or are different weapons. And I really like that part of the game that, like, you're not just collecting damage, it's really affecting what you're able to do as you get damage. So there's a really strong motivation to fix things, uh, especially your torso. You don't want that to get damaged, uh, or else you'll lose the game. But what I really like about this game is, you know, you've got such a simple map, you know, just a a small radar around your suit, um, but it really feels like It works so well of moving around and moving these uh, blips around on the radar and, you know, tracking the damage as you play. Everything's just so smooth and so easy, especially with that time tracker. It feels so thematically well done. It feels as close as you can get. Probably in one page uh, to actually controlling some kind of mech suit like this is—you've got everything at your disposal, like how you're moving, how your posture is. You, you, know, you can actually crouch down and make it harder to hit you and protect certain parts of your suit. The weapons you fire—you know—you're you, you're making these decisions. Like I'm going to fire my missiles or my lasers or or whatever, and and it all works really well thematically. The time it takes to fire the missiles is a little longer than the time it takes. To um, punch someone with your, you know, your 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 powerful robot arms, and I feel like an idiot for saying the phrase "powerful robot arms," but there you go. If you can survive all four waves of enemy attacks, then you win the game. There's kind of a, a preset version of the game that comes with uh, a variety of weapons, uh, some defensive stuff. But what I what's kind of amazing about this game is that you can fill in whatever you want for your suit. like You can totally customize this. Uh, there's about six pages of weapons and what they do and how you can use them and where you can put them. So you can go through at the start of the game, if you don't want to use this preset weaponry, you can actually go through and build out your entire mech. So there's kind of that character building aspect to the game too, where, you know, once you've played the game a few times and you Think, okay, I want to try this or I want to try that. You can actually get in and use this huge, wide variety of weapons. And there's several rules about how much they weigh and how much your mech can weigh. And if you put on too much, it restricts your movement ability. So, like, this is a one-page game with, you know, no components to cut, nothing to do. Just grab some dice and cubes and a pencil and, and get playing. But, man, there is an awful lot of depth in here and a lot of replayability. And I haven't played it yet, but the designer actually just released an expansion called The Factory that puts in even more to this game. So if you get tired of that, there's even more available to you. So this is a really impressive title, and I I, I think it was a very deserving win in that contest. Uh, This is an excellent game, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what the designer does in the future. He also designed Dynamice, which I talked about in the nine-card contest, which really really creative puzzle sliding game so I'm really liking his work so far and I'm excited to see what he does next. So that's all for this week. Next week I'll probably be talking about some of the games from the solo contest but there's also several other games that I'd like to talk about. I've got a pile of print and play solitaire games that I've gotten uh, from Kickstarter or just uh, printed up from Board Game Geek so there's a lot of stuff that I'm excited to talk about in the future. All of the games that I've talked about today can be found on their Board Game Geek page, just in the Files section. And again, they're, they're pretty much all black and white, easy to print, low ink, nothing to cut. So uh, if you're interested in trying any of these games out, they're a really low barrier to entry, especially for print and play. Uh, and I hope you'll go try them out. You guys have a great week, and we'll talk to you next time.
0: All right. So today, Julius and I are talking with Roger Durey, the designer of Dungeon Crusade. Um and actually it's got a little bit longer title than that. Hey, hey Roger, how are you doing?
3: Hello there, guys. Albert and Julius. It's nice to be here and thank you. Yep. For and so
0: me. so your game is currently on Kickstarter. Um it's probably got as of recording probably about 2 weeks left, right? No, actually um, three. 3. 3. okay. 3 weeks. Neat. Yes. Oh, um, Real quick, first off, what is the title of the game again? I didn't get the whole it's, thing, did I?
3: Uh, it's Dungeon Crusade, book one, Genesis of Evil. And um, for those of you who... You know, I invite people to go to our channel, the Grubus Games Unlimited. And what a lot of people don't...
1: You mean a YouTube channel? Or Yes, the
3: YouTube. I'm sorry, YouTube channel with all our videos. And um, even some of the legacy videos, as we're calling them, on my personal um, YouTube but I don't think a lot of people know that, you know, this is, of course, a dungeon crawl game, but I crafted a complete story around this whole game. I mean, there's characters, um, Emperor Sylvian, his wife Ashara, his seven-year-old daughter Mallory, and this huge land called Avalon with 50 different locations. So there's a whole lore behind this game. So, of course, this is the start, and it describes the events of what happened, of why what's happening now with all these monsters coming out of these runes and dungeons and the players come in um, as the as the heroes and so they're coming into all this stuff that happened and of course there's there's an end to all this too in the in the books that will be coming if you know all this goes through
1: so is this an actual book like a novel
3: no i just refer to them as the game like book one will be genesis of Mm -hmm. evil And, um, it'll just, you know, it's going to be loosely tied to like, you know, your gameplay that we're going to write scenarios around, you know, some of the events that'll happen. And I've created storyboards, um, you know, like there's chapters right now. There's eight chapters. I'm on the fourth one right now. Um, your listeners can go to my channel or I think they're posted on Kickstarter and you can read up to chapter four of what's happening and chapter five and eight will be coming just to get people more into this game. You know, there's a lot to it and it's. What I wanted to share with everyone.
1: So those are like those are novel type chapters. I'm just no, trying to get a sense of what you mean by you wrote the story.
3: Um, well, well, the story is going to span, you know, maybe three to four books. But right now, these storyboards are maybe um, some of them are only like nine or ten panels long, where you pause the video and read the storyboard. And I tried to, my best to put like little pictures um, of some of the characters and what's happening. And so they're like storyboards. But as okay. it goes on, there little maybe there's like thirteen or fourteen or fifteen storyboards as it gets up to chapter three and four. So it just tells the story.
1: And when you say storyboard, you mean sort of like a comic book page?
3: Uh, more like a sketching. It's kind of like that. Um, when I created it, it's like a parchment paper, and it's got like these kind of sketchings, if you will, or you know, the best. I'm not an artist. I tried to do the best I could to just um, do these sketchings, if you will, or, or black and white pictures to describe, you know, to draw the person in more, be more thematic. And um, so you read it, and then, you know, it has like little stories boards to it. I don't, it. It's better to see it than describe it.
1: So the idea of the game is that you set up a scenario with a story behind it, and you run through that scenario reading the story pieces or looking at the um, storyboard pieces to understand the story of everything going on while you're experiencing the gameplay behind it. Do I have that right?
3: It's it's more so like just the storyboards you read on your own. You just like you know it's just like a little introductory to the game. But then the the scenarios are just loosely based on that story. You know that'll talk about some locations and you'll have some NPCs that'll say you know what's going on. So it doesn't you know it doesn't really tie in that much to it. It's just more of an overlaying to, you know, add theme to the game.
1: Mm-hmm. So is this the game that you're playing, does it have a story to it, or it's just sort of like a dungeon crawl?
3: It's it's like a dungeon crawl, but, you know, like some, here, I'll say it like this. I'm sorry, I'm trying to be so clear with this. Um, some of, like, the factions, I've created factions called, like, the Black Hand Army, the Maidens of Witherbrook Forest, the Faith, this evil cult group called the Faith, you'll be fighting those monsters in the dungeon. You know, you'll run into the maidens of Witherbrook Forest in the dungeon. Um, maybe in the village board. You know, there's a whole village to this. So the characters that you'll read about in this in these storyboards will be you'll you'll be seeing them in the game in the form of monsters and NPCs that are showing up. Is that I think I said that more clear at that time.
0: Mhm. So, that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah. yeah so, so, like, so let's let's the, jump back a little bit real quick. Okay. Can, can you tell us where you came up with the game? When you came up with
3: it? Ever since I was a kid, Um, yeah, I mean, I've here's the thing. I've always wanted. uh, Well, let me. I won't get ahead of myself with this. What started this whole thing of dungeons? Because I'm obsessed with it. You don't want to know what I would give, you know, fans of this game if I could. I mean, eight dungeon boards, like 400 loot cards, 250 encounter cards, 12 heroes. I mean, I have it in my mind. What you know, the total experience. Of course, you know, money wise, we we can't do that. What started out this whole thing when I was I think I was eight or nine, and I'm sure you guys have seen this. You remember the old dungeon board game from the seventies from T S R? Mm-hmm. That I got that for Christmas. And I never thought of dungeons or monsters or heroes and I got that for Christmas and I remember I was fascinated with it. And like the figures back then were just, you know, like like little sorry tokens, those little pawns. And they were supposed to be like the hero and wizard and all that. And I just thought it was the greatest thing ever. That's what started this whole fascination with, you know, wanting to do a game like this. And, of course, Dark Tower, Milton Bradley's Dark Tower, um, the Ultima games, you know, all those, and Dungeon -hmm. Dungeon Quest is my all-time favorite game, the 80s one. Um, But that's what started all playing these games, and it's just, you know, I'm a very creative, imaginative person, and I always looked for a game like Dungeon Crusade, you know, a, a huge dungeon with monsters that would wander around, and that's, you know, when I came up with the patrol route system, I wanted to give players a massive dungeon crawl. Their heroes are in the thick of this dungeon, you know, like, you know, doing quests. and But yet there's monsters surrounding you, doing, going on their tasks. And um, that's for this book, that's the experience I wanted to give, just that.
0: Neat. Okay, yeah, And it's neat seeing how the monsters could just wander around um, on the board and they just travel down the hallways. And do they go into and out of rooms or just wander around the halls?
3: Um, well, there's 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 three types of monsters in Dungeon Crusade. There's um, minions and guardians. Those are represented by miniatures. They you know they travel they traverse through the dungeon, and then champion monsters reside in the chambers. If you saw like those little doors that are all mm-hmm. over the place, champion monsters reside in the chambers, and those are more like card battles. Um, and, I, and I wanted to do that. If you know if you've watched any of the videos, I keep it very there's something always happening in this game, you know. There, there's never really a dull moment in this game, and um so. But the monsters, the minions, and guardians traverse through the dungeon, and guardians can pin heroes inside chambers if they fail a high check, and then you have to get out of that chamber. But they don't per se enter, you know, the, those chambers though.
0: Okay, that's neat. That's neat. And then you've also this game does have a lot. You've also mentioned it's got um. It's a sandbox game in that there's treasures, there's a village, there's gambling, there's even mining. Yes, um, th- that's really neat. So, uh, all these things are they, are they sort of optional? Like you choose to go mine, or if you yeah. don't like it, leave it out.
3: Yes, you don't you don't have to do that. But the thing is, though, um, Albert, what I wanted to do, I just didn't throw all this stuff, you know, in there. You know, I've seen some comments, and I'm always pleasant with every when i meet and they say well the game looks bloated it, it i don't believe in just throwing something in just to say i threw it in you know what i mean i wanted to have if you want to mine you could of course mine but from mining you get precious gems and then you know you have that your fetchhound albus you can give those gems to albus he runs to the blacksmith and then you can craft um like power gems to attach to your weapons and armor. So your your weapons and armor are more stronger. You know, you can roll, you know, you could add things to your your combat roles. So that's right there for you. Some some people, you know, sometimes when I play, that's what I'll do. It's like, you know, I'm gonna take one hero, I'm just gonna mine, you know, over here and try to make some, you know, power gems to make myself, you know, my character more powerful. Or you don't even have to do that at all. You could just leave that if you don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. It's it's just really totally up to you. It's that's why I consider it an open world dungeon crawl game, but everything That's has a purpose.
0: That's neat. You mentioned there's a there's a dog named Albus. I just have to ask: is that a reference to Dumbledore?
3: No, no. Uh, okay, um, I
0: asked because we've been listening to Harry Potter series audiobooks uh, for the last few months, <laughs> so he's on my you, mind a lot.
3: You know what? Can I can I just touch on this for a moment? David mm-hmm. wanted me to do a video on this, and I just told him it, and I, I promise I'll keep this brief. Um, a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, um, the story of Albus is this that I'm, I'm gonna very keep this brief. Um, I do a lot of stuff on eBay and I was selling these power wheelchairs. I do a lot of stuff. And so I was just, you know, selling them off and this really nice guy named Brett called me and said, Hey, I saw that you're selling the wheelchairs and he came over and I didn't know it was for him. He's like around my age. And, um, he opened up his, his van and he came out in a wheelchair. I'm like oh, I was like I didn't know you know it was for him well out of out of his van comes this awesome yellow lab, and his name is Albus, and I said, Wow, and I love dogs, that's mm. you know God's greatest gift are dogs, I think, and so I started petting Albus and you know like talking to him. Meanwhile, in the game, I was having trouble, I was at a real mental block because of course, you don't know this, in case you don't know this here the heroes cannot leave the dungeon until celebration day they have to complete their quests and then they're allowed to travel to the village and that was kind of like in eye of the beholder and i think you said you like that one mm-hmm, yes well you know a like, classic game you you are you know those heroes are trapped in there so the thing was i was at a, i was really perplexed because the heroes were in the dungeon and i didn't want them you know like that was the game you're in the dungeon albus was never even thought of till then and it's like, well, maybe I can use a teleport stone where the heroes can teleport out a few times. And it just, you know, it just didn't work. Mm-hmm. And then the, the thing that seriously, I mean, I remember this, what broke this was I was talking with Brett and I was telling about Dungeon Crusade and I was you know, petting Albus and he said, here, watch this. And he took off his baseball hat and he threw it into my yard and he said, Albus, go get it. And Albus went and got the baseball hat and brought it back. And right there, I'm like, Brett, your dog just solved this huge problem. And that's why Albus was put into the game. He's oh, the okay. hero's fetchhound. So Al, you send Albus to the village to get your health potions, gear, um, gems to craft. And seriously, that's how I thought of Albus. And I named Albus that in honor of Brett. And um, Albus, of course, is a, his service dog. And he's on my friends list for Facebook. So sorry. Oh, hey, okay. I really wanted to share that with people. So I'm sorry <laughs> I, I dragged that out.
0: That's a neat story. Thanks.
3: Um. So anyway, sorry if you can get back to that now.
0: <laughs> well, that, that was because I asked you uh, where the name of Albus came from.
3: That's um, right. Well, there you go. Now you know.
0: Yep. <laughs> now, when you mentioned your 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 backstory, you mentioned video games and board games. You didn't mention any pen and paper RPGs. Do you did you play those too?
3: Absolutely, yes. When I was like eighteen or nineteen, I was on my own, and um, we would play at my apartment, my first apartment. And a really awesome guy named Chris Rothgary um, got me into that. And all of us would come back to my apartment, and all night we would play. Like um, there was a, this is back in the late '80s, but there was a I think one called Ice, I C E, um, Call of Cthulhu, and of course Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. And he was like the the GM or the DM for all that. So that's that was when I played you know that kind of stuff for for good for years. It was just really fond memories of that
0: okay, I remember the ice game those that one was really complicated. I tried it once and it was overwhelming for me. <laughs> yeah, Chris
3: ran it. I had no idea. I was just really you know getting into that and um yeah so that's that's my extent of playing that
0: okay um so, well back to the game now because I don't wanna detour us too much um basic stuff like how many wh- what type of heroes does this game have? It, I think we maybe need to just summarize how the game is played. Ooh, I don't think we've done that. Good yet. idea. How, how does the game play?
3: <laughs> okay, well, you know, you have you control six heroes. And I'd like to say now that a lot of people say, well, do you have to play with six? It, it's kind of was made to do that, but I'm all for modding. I mean, that's why I did this game. You can mod this game to play if you choose to do so, but you control six heroes, just like those classic games like Wizardry, Might and Magic, Baldur's Gate. So, you control six heroes at a time and, of course, Albus, your Fetch Hound. Um, and then there's an uh, there's a upkeep phase, and then there's an encounter phase, hero phase, and monster phase. So do you want to take it from there or do you want me to elaborate more? Yes, please. Okay, well, in your upkeep phase... Um, there's a few things you do. If you have any afflictions, your heroes can get affliction, afflictions in this game, like bleeding, broken bones, paralysis, um, you could be feared, terrified. So you would process any of the afflictions in your upkeep phase. Um, if you have any torches, you have to roll to see if your torch is extinguished. But the biggest thing you do, um, which I really get into when I do my videos... Um, my favorite part, actually, is where you lay out the initiative tokens. You know, there's six heroes. You have six initiative tokens. So you look over the dungeon and you lay out your strategy, your tactics, and your planning for the upcoming churn. And that's where you're going to you know, say, okay, well, I want my warrior and archer to go first and second. So you'd put the initiative tokens on that, you know, on them. And then say maybe you want to create a party of three heroes with your... Um, barbarian, rogue, and cleric. So you would put initiative token three, four, and five on them, and then your last hero, like I'm gonna send him to go mine, or go, you know, hunt down this treasure chest. So that's what you do in the upkeep phase. In the encounter phase, you draw one of the encounter cards. And I think when people hear encounter cards, they have a misconception like they're bad. And I, what I created, of course, I wrote all the stuff. Encounters in this game are really fun. There could be challenges, there could be events, there could be environment cards that are persistent. Um, you know, like the last game I just played that we're we have a session going now, and I pulled an environment called Night of the Undead, where all undead monsters get plus three to all of their warfare traits. So, and there's fun challenges that the heroes have to do stat, you know, attribute tests. Um, So after encounter phase, you go into the hero phase where you're going to lay out. You know, you're going to put your plan into action with your heroes. Um, You're going to move your heroes, combat, go mine if you want. You know, for minerals. And then fourth is monster phase. All the monsters will activate, and then it goes right back to the upkeep phase. I made it. You know, hopefully very easy to understand. Four phases, and then go right back to the top.
1: Even though each of those phases sounds like it has a whole lot in it.
3: It. Um, the counter's really fast. I mean, that, the upkeep sounds like it is, but it's just, you know, you know what you do, Julius, if that's you talking? Um, you, yeah. you, you're gonna spend a lot of time, and this is what I like about it. You're gonna, you're gonna think. Because, you know, like, of who you wanna attack, you just don't throw your heroes out. Because in Dungeon Crusade, I created six different warfare types. Um, you know, there's physical, range, arcane, mythical, mind, and chaos. And it's kind of like our world. You know how we have all these different fighting styles? You know, karate, taekwondo. I wanted in Mm -hmm. the world of Avalon, your hero only has two of those six. So you really have to think about what heroes to party up together. I mean, like create a true party so they complement each other when they're fighting the monsters. You know, if you just go out there and, you know, try to just send any hero anywhere without thinking, you know, you're destined to be doomed. So that's... You know, in the upkeep phase, that's the longest thing when you think and strategize about who you want to put together and who, you know, what monsters you want to go go after. So that does take some time right there, but it's fun, you know, it's fun thinking though. You know, fun strategy.
1: Well, about how long does it take to play a typical game?
3: I that is probably the biggest question I get asked with this, and I'm going to tell you like what I tell everyone. Depending on the scenario that you create or the scenario that the scenarios that we're going to write for in the book, Um, it, this could be, you could have a very short scenario where on those, if, I don't know how how familiar you are with the game, but there's those quest tables, say you only have a few quests to complete, you know, you just want to play like an hour game, maybe an hour and a half. Okay. On the quest table, maybe you'd have only two main quests. So, you know, you would only use maybe level one heroes and you'll be fighting level one and two monsters. Um, and then, you know, that'll just be a nice hour, hour and a half game. It's the, the thing is, the more quests that you add to this and how complex those, like, main quests are, that's what's gonna deter how long it is. So you could have an all-nighter, like me and David, that's what we love. We'll sit here all night and play this thing. You know, or our games like that. You can have that experience, or you could have just, you know, a small one to get your, to get your fix in. So really, it's, it, it's so open to what, however you wanna play this game.
0: Can, can you describe more about the quest? I think you mentioned that the to play the game, the goal is to complete some quests, but then there's also side quests that you you can do or you could ignore Re- them.
3: Oh no, you have to do like on a quest table there's the, the two main quests are of course main quests and side quests. Main quests are very specific quests, and they were written with you know like the villagers who are going to give the heroes you know of course quests to do in the dungeon you'll have to retrieve certain items. And some of them are chain quests where you know you have to do one thing and it'll lead to another thing. So those are like kind of like the meat and potatoes of Dungeon Crusade. You know that you're going to you're going to be traversing different areas of the dungeon and searching for stuff. Side quests are basically kill and clear quests where maybe someone from the temple has said you know we're looking you know to, for you to kill undead monsters. And so there, it's going to be like a kill and clear where you have to kill four level one monsters or maybe three level one monsters, one level two for level one. And then they scale up as you go on the quest tables. You know, there's three quest tables, one, two, and
0: three. So now there's also a, a second Overland game. That's a separate game?
3: Oh, the Avalon Adventure Board game. Yeah. Okay. That's – um. I consider that, I've been calling that like an appetizer. You know, if you want to just experience more of of before Dungeon Crusade. And what you do is, I wrote, um, it's like, I think 252 pieces of creative writing. And basically, it's a little board game, and it's the map of Avalon. And so you start out at Hope's Reach, and you use one figure to represent all six. And what you do is, you have to recover these three runes that are randomly distributed Across the map. The three runes shatter the curse on the dungeon door. And so, what you'll do in this is you, you, you know, you move to different air, different zones of Avalon, and then you uncover to see if you found one of the runes. But in the meantime, there's, um, you know, f- like little stories. The heroes could get in trouble in a village. Um, you may, you know, explore a little dungeon. It, they're like little micro adventures, and you use your attributes on your hero cards to complete, like, you know, willpower checks and um evasion checks, hide checks, combat checks. And then the th- the nice thing is all of the gear and the and like the the gold that you that you may find, you can use to start Dungeon Crusade with. And your heroes may take damage out there. So, you know, you have to track your damage, and it's just a, a cool another exciting way to play Dungeon Crusade. So, you don't just start playing Dungeon Crusade, you play the Avalon Adventure board game, maybe get some loot, some gold. You know, your heroes might come in kind of battered. You know, before they start the game. So that's what that is. And it's very thematic. Every zone, I wrote to be very specific, you know, to that zone um, across Avalon.
0: It sounds like what it does really is it, it gives you more of a story as you're playing the game.
3: Yeah, yes. And you'll learn, uh, like, a lot of, like, you know, like, the faith and the maidens of Witherbrook Forest. Um you know for example like there's a tower called the, Ma- the tower of the maidens and that's where the the maidens of witherbrook forest live well if you go into that zone Um, one of those outcomes could be that the maidens have caught the heroes and they're going to interrogate each one. And you have to roll a willpower check to make sure you pass it. And if not, you know, they bonk you on the head or something like that, you know? They're fun little like stories that'll go through. You know, you go into towns, um, and one of the towns we have is Hunter's Watch and it says hero two and hero three are arguing and a guard comes up and you have to, you know, pass a speech test to, you know, talk your way out of it, you know, or something will happen. So it's, it's truly, random every time you play that game of what, you know, with all those different outcomes, what could happen.
0: Now, all the art that you have in the Kickstarter page, that's all prototype art?
3: Yes, it's all prototype, and I was just discussing this with someone. You know, I had to to get this vision out. You know, I had to show something. Um, Mm -hmm. And, of course, you see we have um, some incredible artists on board. They're going to be taking my prototype game, looking at it and then they're gonna be, you know, putting their imagination and creativity in Dungeon Crusade. They're gonna look at, you know, maybe a skeleton warrior that I have and they are free to do to recreate how they see fit. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I'm a very I'm like the most easygoing guy you're ever gonna meet. I, I, I would never say you have to do this like this. Absolutely not. Dungeon Crusade is like everyone's game. The backers, you know, the artist mine, it's it's everyone's game. And so yes, there's placeholder art just to show the vision I had for this game, but nothing nothing that you see is going to be put into the final game. everything is going to be redone, and you know of course the way it should be. Um, so that's that's how you know that's working right now with that. And plus, I want to add, too, that speeds up the process. All the artists have agreed that having this to look at, we don't have to go through concept art, you know what I mean, back and forth. Well, do you want yeah. it to look like this? This cuts down the workload. And now David may yell at me for this, okay? I speak from the heart. I, I would anticipate a sooner ship date. Than July, because he's, gonna, he's yeah. gonna
0: kill you for that. <laughs> but maybe, and I
3: don't want to say that. But my thing is, I know I see all these backers, these awesome people. They really want this game, so I'm just saying the artists have said, you know, this this is really good to have this prototype because now we see what you what you want to do. They're just going to recreate everything for the final game.
0: <laughs> gotcha. Okay. And you said July. You mean next July?
3: Um, yes, there's a ship date of July of 2017.
0: Okay. <laughs> so so people shouldn't be thinking, no, oh, I might get it this month. He said it'll be before <laughs> July. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it may be. I just want to say it, it may be. But, you know, I, I think, you see, I, I want this in gamers' hands, and I will do everything in our power, yeah. but making sure it's perfect for them. We want to make sure that, you know, this is right as rain.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. Now this really looks like a labor of love. It looks like you spent a lot of time in it and, and really enjoy the game. It, it sounds like it and it looks like it when I look at the Kickstarter page. Thank you. It's just fantastic. There's a dice tray in the in
3: the Kickstarter page. Everyone asked me about that thing. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what that is? Anyway, I want to just I want to backtrack for a second. I want people to note something, and it, I'm going to tie into this, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, Albert. This was not overnight at all. Yeah. I mean, there's Honestly, probably probably thousands of hours into this of revisions, reworking you know I've gamed all my life, and I know when gameplay sucks and I anything t- that didn't work was either reworked or just totally removed from the game for stuff that would work you know in the game and you know a lot of people which i I totally admit well, you were on Kickstarter you know two other times. And the thing is this, I had to get on Kickstarter to learn the Kickstarter machine. You know, I'm someone who believes experience is the best teacher. The game was so young at that point, and it just wasn't fully realized. And I, honest to godly, I had no business being on Kickstarter for those first and second attempts. Um, but, you know, I'm proud of it because it got me to where I am now. You know, it, mm-hmm. is, it is not the same game at all than what it was. Um so I just wanted to say that that this was not overnight. This was just really hammering away and my family supporting me in, in doing this because I had this vision for people to give them something truly unique to enjoy and to build and create. So I did, I'm sorry, I wanted to say that. Um, the mm-hmm. dice box, everyone asks can they have that dice box. And to be honest, all those decals on the side I'm giving away for free. So if, if there's people that's already made their dice box and they're I saw what Pete Jones on there has made one already, and he's putting decals like phase one, phase two, and phase three but i that all those decals I made it, and you know they can have those for free that's actually a picture frame that I found at a garage sale way. Oh, no. yeah that that's a, a really cool picture frame and I took out the glass and the backing, and I'm good. I'm a prop builder on the side, so I cut like a nice piece of wood and got some gray felt and put it in there and then adorned it with all those decals that I designed that say, you know, with the runes and all that. But all that stuff is free. If anyone wants that, I can upload that to our Dropbox or Board Game Geek, and feel free to take it and create your own.
0: Neat, okay. I had, I had no idea. It never occurred to me to use a picture frame for for a dice tray. That's a
3: great idea. A lot of people do that.
0: Neat. Okay. Um, now, in, in the Kickstarter page, you also mentioned you're not going to retail. Is, is this something you're planning to do as a one time project? No, I guess you already mentioned you're gonna. There's there's more parts of the story.
3: Right. It, you know. And again, this is you know seeing how it goes on Kickstarter. We would really like to go retail. You know, just so everyone has a chance to get this game that you know really wants it, but. Again, we don't know how the Kickstarter is going. You know, it's life. Who knows? This can could catch fire, and then definitely we could do it. Or we might be, you know, having our niche crowd, which I truly love having this niche crowd. But ultimately, yes, we'd like to go retail with it so everyone can enjoy this who would like to enjoy it.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um. So I guess the answer probably is that traditional, it depends, but if you... If the uh, if the game succeeded in the future, would you be creating expansions or more standalone games? Do you think?
3: Um, yeah, for th- like
0: book two, book three, and
3: whatnot. Oh, absolutely! And I already have pretty much book two fleshed out. You know, I don't stay stagnant for too long. You know, <laughs> this this book one is all about dungeon crawling, and I again, I'm I'm good at keeping surprises. If you know, okay. If you, and so, book two is going to if I would have came to Albert if I would have came to Kickstarter with book two. And showed them, people would have probably said, "Okay, get out of here. You're absolutely bonkers, Roger Deering. But now that you know, I have you know, hopefully I have some clout behind me. Get book one out. I think people are going to be blown away when they see book two of what I have planned. Because I just, I love to innovate and create for people, and you know, do new things. And I'm die, okay. hard, I'm diehard for the soloist gamer. I want to say that Soloist and co-op. That's my crowd.
0: Cool. Okay. And, and so so it sounds like book two wouldn't be an expansion to book one. It would be a standalone a game. A standalone, yes. Okay, cool. Okay. Um, cool. Uh, I don't think I have any other questions myself. How about you, Julius? No, I think that we pretty well covered the game.
3: Okay. okay. I hope I didn't well, talk too much for you. I hope I addressed everything for your, for your listeners and for you guys.
0: I think you described it pretty well. I appreciate the time
3: and thank you can i add one mm-hmm. last thing that you know hopefully if this takes off i as i said i i'm dungeon crusade was built from the ground up for the soloist and co-op gamer i mean i'm a solo gamer believe it or not i love the solo games If I can, I'm not antisocial, but I just think there's a, there's a charm to just, you know, trying to take on a game and beat it. And I just have so many ideas for solo players. You know, I want to pioneer some new things for them to enjoy. And so, yes, there's more games I want to do. David will be joining me and hopefully the team I have around me now will be joining me to do that. And, um, you know, I just, I want to thank everyone for, they're so kind and generous over at Kickstarter and you, and um, I d- I'm just really fortunate to know you guys, and I'm honored, and it's a pleasure.
0: All right, thank you. Okay, <laughs> I wish you the best of luck. I hope it does well. Thank so, and you. And it looks like you're almost funded, actually.
3: If I actually have a window open right now, it's at um, sixty-one thousand seven hundred ninety, and it's the fifth, so it's looking good.
0: Yep, out of seventy thousand. So yeah, you're you're ninety-five percent there, probably or so. Yeah. Neat. Cool. <laughs> It
3: was All great right. meeting you guys, Julius and Albert. And just thank you for this time.
0: Yep, thank Our you. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay, guys. All right. All right. Um, so today's game is called Mo Money by Matt Saunders, and this is a a pun, a play on words. Mo as in M O W as in mow your lawn. Um, that's right. This is a game about lawn mowing. Hard times. Hard times. <laughs> so. This game, I think, we, came out. We were talking
1: about that off the air earlier because my lawnmower just. Oh
0: ran. yeah, <laughs> this game is so apropos. So then you can't have your own lawnmowing business now. It's a. Um, this game came out last year, I believe. Uh, yeah, without my reading mm-hmm. glasses, I can't yep, tell. Twenty fifteen. Sure. Okay. And um, this is a, it's a it's a neat game. The theme is it's surprisingly well integrated into the gameplay. It's a it's an auction bidding game. Basically, the premise is you have your own lawnmowing business. And you're competing against other lawnmower businesses, lawnmower businesses, trying to get contracts and mow people's lawns and make more money and buy better equipment and that sort of thing. Um, so the game is designed for one to six players, the, and it's it's an auction an auction game. So so the one player mechanic is interesting here because I was I was curious to see another auction game since we've been talking about auction games lately, and and how do you do (laughs) auction mechanics? Someone's killing a theme. Yep, <laughs> that's right. The, the ever elusive auctioning. So, let's see how this game does it. In, in the multiplayer game, um, there are an equal number of neighbor- uh, The number of neighborhoods that are out are equal to the number of players. And basically, each neighborhood has a stack of cards that you could bid on. Um, each player is going to have a, a hand of cards that are contracts. And there's three types of contracts that each associated with the type of lawmores you have. The better the lawmore, the more money you could charge for some reason. Um, maybe because you could do larger yards, I guess. The, um, actually, yeah, that is what it is. And, uh, you start with just a basic <laughs> push more. And so you have a hand of cards that have small money amounts. And on your, tr- uh, you know, on each round, the players go around and bid on a property that's available. There'll be, let's say it's a four-player game, there'll be four neighborhoods, and you could bid on, on the, whichever yard is available in that neighborhood, and uh, any of the neighborhoods. And you bid a number of cards, the number of cards you could bid depends on the house that is up for bid. Um, I guess the bigger the yard, the more lawnmowers you need, therefore the more cards. So that's the minimum amount you have to bid, that's exact or that's the maximum amount you amount can you have to bid. bid? That's the exact amount. Ah. And each of the cards you have have different values. Plus, in the multiplayer game, there's also bluffing cards that are blank.
1: Um, Can you bid more than the minimum? You cannot. Or bid more than what's said.
0: You can't bid more than the minimum. But once you have won a contract, and you take the the card for that yard that you won, you could also include it in your bid later, sort of as a as a reference, a personal reference, saying, "Look, I mowed this person's yard, so maybe I'm more likely to get another job next time because I already have good references." Mm. Um, so you play your. Let's say you're bidding three cards. You'd bid your three plus your your references. Um and your references help you how? Do they count as money? They yes. So when you do the bid, you now everybody flips over the cards that they have and totals up the money, the value. Whoever bid the lowest is gonna get the contract. Right? You're saying I could cut your lawn for ten dollars or I could cut your lawn for twelve dollars. Whoever's offering me the lowest price is the person that I'm gonna hire. Um the reference cards let you lower that amount by the value of the of that yard. Um Whoever bids the lowest amount will win the bid and then collect the uh, the amount they bid. And so this is...
1: Minus... So the amount bid is reduced by the amount of references
0: It's have. only It's only reduced in terms of the bidding, but not in terms of collecting the money. Ah, good. Because mm-hmm. I was like,
1: boy, that's weird.
0: This is the first time where I get paid less because I previously worked hard. <laughs> that's right. No, but you don't get paid less. You just... It's a little bit of clout you have, I guess. Um, okay. But but it works pretty interesting. It, it's pretty neat. And so you could do that once you use the reference up. You you actually discard the card. It's out of the game. You don't get to use it again. Um. But you get the money. The money lets you take on more contract cards, which are the basically the what you're bidding with. It lets you also buy better lawnmowers. Um. If you buy a better lawnmower, the the next range of cards are worth more money. And let you bid on bigger yards. And then there's a third size lawnmower. These are the big ones that the guys uh ride with the big Riding tanks. Ones. Yeah. The big there's a there's a push mower, a medium, like a power mower. well no, the the push mower, I think. It's or maybe it is a power mower. Pushmower push mower push more has no power
1: on it. It's just like a rotating right. blade. Well
0: <laughs> I cannot Oh, you're talking that kind. Yeah, yeah. No, this is a power mower then. Uh that I, think, I think I have the terms correct. I don't know. We'll go with it. I'm no I'm no more an expert. Then the oh no, they call it a pushmore. Okay, the middle sized one is is a ready more, and the the large size is the big ready mores that you could turn on a diamond and all that. But anyway, they they each have their own types of bid cards that are worth more, and you need the bigger ones to bid on bigger yards. Um, you're gonna keep playing this way until one of the neighborhoods runs out of cards. At that point, everybody adds up all their the the yards that they've won, all the all the properties that they won that they're mowing, that they still have, which they have not given up as references, plus money they have, they get three or one point for every three money. So that's that's the way the game works. It's interesting. It's a fun game with multiplayer because you know you're trying to bid as low as you can, but if you bid too low, you're not really making any money. So, so there's a bit of a dynamic so there. You
1: bid with lawn mowers or you're bidding with like money.
0: You're bidding you're bidding with contract cards which have numbers printed on them. Um, okay. And you're saying, you know, I'm willing to do the job for this amount.
1: Okay. Um,
0: also, in the multiplayer game, the bidding is, it's not blind, but you, you don't tell people what neighborhood you're bidding on. Everybody bids at the same time and then f- reveals which of the neighborhoods they bid on. You could bid on two different neighborhoods out of however many are out every turn. There's also something called a odd job. Those contract cards also have these little icons on the side, and if you play a set of three of a certain icon, you just make some money for doing odd jobs. Um, so that's a different way to make money if you have s- maybe some set of cards you don't really think you could use or whatever. Um, okay. So that, that's how the multiplayer game works. It's pretty straightforward. It's going to keep going until one of the neighborhood runs out. Um, so now, how they did this in a solitaire game? Excuse me. The the way they did this in a solitaire game is um, they they needed to keep the auction mechanic because that really is the heart of the game. Um. So here, you you always play two neighborhoods. Like if it's a two player game, and there's exactly there's a fixed number of cards in each neighborhood. I forget the number. Uh, with, eight with a very precise distribution. Is it eight? It goes up to eight, but some of the some of the values is going to be more than one card. Oh, okay. There'll be like three twos and three threes. So it's probably more like I'd say twelve to fifteen cards. Um. On each, na- on I each mean, it neighborhood. On each neighborhood.
1: Here that there are eight cards on each neighborhood.
0: No, oh, maybe I'm wrong. I thought... I, oh, I do know the, the value goes now. up to 8. Okay. Okay. Um... No, you are right. It is 8 cards in the neighborhood. I remember now. Um... But anyways, th- so there's 8 cards exactly in the neighborhood. And... In the multiplayer game, if nobody bids on one of the neighborhood cards, that card gets moved to the bottom of the deck and a new card is available next time in the neighborhood. I guess, presumably, the guy mowed his own lawn. He got tired of looking or something. Um... In the Solitaire game, you're, you're bidding against an AI. So each turn, you could make two bids. You could either bid on both yards or bid on one yard and do an odd job. Um, now you are limited with the cards you have in your hand, so you can't always bid on both yards. Uh, and if, if you don't bid on one or if you lose the bid, those yards go to the AI. Um, so which means the game is always going to end after eight rounds. You either win the card, or the AI gets it. And then you flip over the next cards. Um, the way the auction goes, it's pretty simple and pretty straightforward. You you pick your cards to bid with, and then you flip over three cards from the deck for the AI. And if your number is lower or tied, you win the bid. If it's higher, you lose the bid. Excuse me. Um. So it is kind of random. There is some strategy to that, but... Not a whole lot. The what you have to advantage is you could always add in your um your references of the yards you've won before. But if you do that, you're losing them, which is, means you're not getting points. Um, I, I thought this is an interesting way to do a, an auction mechanic, though. I do find the solitaire game ends up being a little bit dry. And well,
1: you said it's not strategic. Are you actually making choices, or are m- you just trying to? Is there some prediction you have?
0: Y- you're. There is some prediction you have because you know the distribution of, of yards in the neighborhood. So you know there's one yard that, that is worth $8, and you know there's one that's worth one and so many worth two. So you, you know that if, if you've gone through and you haven't seen the eight yet, you know it's likely to show up soon. So there's a little bit of strategy there. And um, y- you want to kind of like choose the right time maybe to, to use one of your cards as a reference to get, to get a strong card. But overall, so it's essentially, you're nice. trying to
1: save your stuff until you see one that you really want. Then you throw everything you can to the one you really want.
0: Yeah, but if you throw in too much, then you're going to end up losing anyway.
1: Yeah, but you have no idea what's going to be coming out. It's completely you, you random do, what's coming right. out. Yep. Because the the dummy bid the dummy player may bid
0: zero on an eight point lawn, right? Uh, th- no the the eight point lawn you have to use the the large moors. And the cards are all valued, I think, at 3, 4, and 5. So I think the least you could possibly bid is 9.
1: The least the dummy could bid. Yep. But by that same token, that's the least you could possibly bid also.
0: Yes, but you could then use in your your old yards that you've won and lower your money. And there's some stars. Some of the, some of the yards require stars on your card. And some of the cards you're bidding with some of the contract cards also have stars. So... If they have stars, they seem to; they tend to lean towards the higher-end numbers, where the ones without stars seem to lean towards the lower-end numbers. Um, if the yard requir- has a star, then you have to play stars. If it doesn't have a star, then you don't. So that also makes it a little more complicated. And I also mentioned the odd jobs. It tends to be that the lower contract cards are going to give you odd jobs that collect less money and the higher value contracts are going to give you a lot more money. But it's also not evenly distributed. And there's, I think, five or six different symbols. So sometimes you, you, you're you torn between bidding on a yard or using that card for, for an odd job. So... Oh, so, oh, oh. how much decision,
1: so, how much decision was there based on all of that? I mean, I hear you saying that there's some there's decision. There's some, and, and there's a lot of decision. It. That's not
0: a lot of decision. I wouldn't, I wouldn't get this for the solitaire play. I wouldn't buy this game strictly for solitaire. If I'm gonna play this multiplayer, then it's fun to try the solitaire and to learn a little bit. But, um, I, I wouldn't get it as a dedicated solitaire game.
1: Well, do you feel that for someone who likes the multiplayer mode, do they gain more skill from the Solitaire play? Is the Solitaire play
0: similar to what you'd expect from the multiplayer? You know, it is, but it's going to lack the tension of the auctions. So I don't know how much you'll, you'll gain in skills. You'll, you'll gain some of the basic mechanics, but you know, I'm always really bad at trying to outguess other people, and I always guess wrong. Um, <laughs> playing against the AI is not going to help that.
1: Okay, <laughs> I know we discussed last week even how you feel that you know it doesn't need to match from the solitaire to the multiplayer mode.
0: It doesn't, and yeah, but in this case, I mean it's it's not enough of a game. I think I, I I'm glad I got to see the auction mechanic and try it out. Um, it's an interesting way to do the auction mechanic. You know that either you win it or you're going to lose it, and the card's going to go to the opponent, and that's going to hurt you, which forces you to bid. Um, what not doesn't force you because sometimes you could let a card go. If there's two cards that are out, uh, one's worth five and one's worth two, y- you could choose. You could make choices. In some cases, you have choices. You could end up bidding on both cards, or choose to bid on one of them, let the other one go to the AI, and take a nod job to make some cash, some quick cash. Mm-hmm and and you got to make choices there. Definitely and I think sometimes you you know which is the right choice, sometimes you just have to think on it and go with your gut.
1: Well, one thing we didn't mention also, that it sounds like the game is really designed for kids. Is it? And what do you feel about the card art? Does the
0: card art also convey that? I think the card art does look like it's for kids. Um and it is an auction mechanic. There aren't many kid games with auction mechanics so it might work for them. But I think adults will enjoy it too because of the, just the way the auction works. Bidding. Did you try playing with any kids? Yeah, I played with my son. He loved it. You know, the star player marker is a big uh, lawnmower. <laughs> what, like a metal one or a card? A card. A card stock. Okay. It's uh, shaped like a lawnmower. Now, the guy that made this game, Matt Saunders, apparently his grandfather owns a lawnmowing business, and he has like one of the largest lawnmower manufacturing companies in the U.S. for industrial lawnmowers. And so he's got Moyne and his family history, and that, that's what inspired him to make the game, which is kind of neat. So, yeah, so so we're on a quest. So how much do you recommend it? For, so you,
1: ha- you didn't recommend it very strong for the solitaire play. Do you recommend it a lot for multiplayer?
0: I think it's okay for multiplayer. Only okay. Only okay. But it is the start on our quest for the auction mechanic in solitaire gaming. <laughs> so you're saying that if you're trying to figure out how to do a solitaire
1: auction, don't look here. Or do look here. Do Which look one here. Are you I saying? say look here.
0: Look at this, see how it works. I think there's some things you could take out of it, definitely. Okay. I don't think it's the solution, though. Okay.
1: We'll- I don't think we're looking for solutions.
0: I think we are now.
1: Well, no, I don't think you're going to find the one solution. Oh. Like, oh. for example, the automa system is not the solution. It's one method. You're right,
0: yes. Yes. <laughs> so this is a survey of auctions in Solitaire Gaming. Well, I, I you guess go.
1: you've made that your goal. Yes, I, I think <laughs> I have. It's a mini goal.
0: <laughs> so you're saying
1: that we started with the year of war gaming, and now you're moving to the year of auction mechanics. Are there
0: any war games with auctioning in them? I'm sure there must be.
1: I imagine.
0: Yeah yeah and some more games you auction off who's the star player and all that well we'll we'll figure it out <laughs> all right, and so that's mo money it's it's a short review um it's an okay game, but especially if you play multiplayer
1: well, I have only one real question for you hmm what's it missing? Oh, it's a good question.
0: <laughs> Let's find
1: out um no, you are going to be arguing your word. Is given to you by Mo, and your word is mirrors. Mirrors. Thank you, Mo. (laughs) I, on the other hand, I, on the other hand, have to deal with marsupials. Thank you, Matt (laughs) Berard. Marsupials. I I feel like there's definitely some skewing occurring here. (laughs) I definitely feel like there's some skewing going on. uh, What kind of die are you using? Are you using a one player podcast die? I can't, I don't think we have a one player podcast that changes between one and however many submissions <laughs> we have. Currently we have 40 words now submitted by oh, awesome. everyone who's being so kind and giving us so many words. So now we actually have quite a good number. Feel free to keep giving us more words. We love seeing more come in. Although one note, if you hear us say your name, please send us an email. Because we don't always have your contact information. Yep, that's <laughs> right. Or when you submit the word, make sure and use your BGG username in there. That would also... That work. would help, yeah. So I have Mo and Matt Berard. I suppose I could just add BGG username to the form. There you go. That maybe makes sense. Couldn't hurt. So we'll add that to the form. But nonetheless, if you hear it and you don't hear from us, feel free to send us an email. Because I know that someone had to do that because we didn't have the email. But it's all good. Um, So thank you both to Mo and Matt. Now then, Albert, do you know who won
0: last time? I do not. I don't even know what the words were last time. thinking back. I posted it. You know what I did this time is I waited about two days after posting the podcast before posting the – the um, poll, to give people time to hear it. Why? Because I wonder, you know, if if I post it, people are going to see the poll right away, but haven't listened to it yet, so they can't really vote fairly. You know? Uh. So I figured, and, and honestly, are you going to go back and look for it? I wouldn't. I'd forget to. Well, that's how I want to have it up, as soon as they listen to it. Yeah, I'm yeah. I'm more likely to not go back and find it after I've listened to because I know many times I listen to podcasts and I say, oh, this I got to do this or so I got to go do that later because this was well, really interesting. You
1: had a lot of you had a lot of people responded at least ah because um, you had eight we had thirty four respondents. for oh, yours okay. Well, that proves um, my theory. Eighteen eighteen voted for music and sixteen voted for toothpicks. So wow. narrowly, narrowly <laughs> you won. So really, this game needs both music and toothpicks. Musical toothpicks. And that was for Burgle Bros. Yes. <laughs> so apparently music won by just a hair, so you get to pick if you want to go first or second.
0: I'll let you go first with your marsupials.
1: Marsupials.
0: <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to go ahead and start. Ready? Wait, wait, stopwatch.
1: I have one up oh, here. Okay.
0: Me too. Ready? Say when you want to go.
1: Go. So, marsupials, when you're having a lawn mowing company, the most important part is being able to hire new people. In this one, it seems like you're only going to be by yourself. What's the best kind of helper? The kind you don't have to pay. Even better if the only pay you have to give them is bananas. Because I think marsupials eat that. Either that or they eat leaves. So hire marsupials as a helper.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm glad I get a rebuttal. No, you get a rebuttal. <laughs> Darn, I, I get to rebut yours,
1: man. I wish I had, I had. But you get to. You can spend any of your twenty seconds talking in response to marsupials. You can. You can entirely ignore mirrors. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Are you ready? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Go. Marsupials do not eat bananas. Marsupials carry their children in young in pouches on their tummy. What would you do with a pouch? carrying an animal on the lawnmower. That just sounds risky and dangerous and irresponsible. Really what you need is mirrors. Smoke and mirrors. Alright, so-, so I get now a five-second <laughs>
1: rebuttal. Here I go. So Albert is condoning cheating and victimizing your people by using just smoke and mirrors. Done. <laughs> <sighs>
0: Alright, low blows, lo low I did not have a strong feeling for this day's word. <laughs>
1: I'll grant you, yeah, uh, I guess marsupials don't eat bananas, but oh well. <laughs> it's still better than trying to cheat. Cheater. Cheater, <laughs> cheater, cheater. Thanks for listening. We love feedback, so we love hearing from you.